There we go. Okay. Um, I, I couldn't tell you what year it is. Back in the 90s, 1990s, late 90s, um, my mom calls me up one morning uh, to tell me that uh, the night before, my grandmother had passed away. Her mom, my grandma Jean. My grandma Jean had, during the previous year, uh, had had to have, um, and I don't see, and I wasn't around, so I, this is all secondhand for me. But she'd had both both legs removed, or just one, just one. Okay, I couldn't remember exactly how it was, uh, because of health problems that she had had uh, that just compounded over the years. And and you're sad. Um, I love this grandma. We'd go to my this grandma and we'd have anyway, I could get caught up in the memory of this grandmother and the time that we'd spend together. All the sugar cookies and fig newtons we ate and tea parties we had and in games of aggravation we played with her. Uh and then as we got older, her appreciation for God, she's the one that actually she was one of the ones that really encouraged me in going to seminary because I was going to go someplace else. My grandmother goes, "Why would you want to go there? You want to go over here." Like <laughs> To this day, I'm thankful for people like that that God brought into my life. But th there's a sadness that comes when you lose somebody that's very dear to you. Um, under No matter what circumstances, it, you, it's still there's a sadness that comes with it. But my mother immediately says, just think, not right now. Now, this is because of an intermediate body. But right now, having been confined to a wheelchair for for actually quite a long time, She's walking and leaping and praising God. It's one of those things you're you're on the phone. First of all, you're crying because she's passed away, and then you're, you're then you're crying with joy because her time of suffering is over. I've also had over the years, I've had quite a few people that have called me up. I I don't get this much anymore, but that have called me up and say. Um, uh, so-and-so in our family has passed away. Sometimes these are people I've never met. I don't know these people at all. But they were like, but he went to a Baptist church when he was a kid, and we would like you to do his funeral service. Um, and so I have done in years past, it's been quite a long time, funeral services for people that, for all, all that I could tell, um, were not believers. And as you talked to the family and you shared the hope of the, of the good, the gospel and the hope of the future, you could tell that it was just like totally glazed over. Like they had no idea what you're talking about. And it just, it, it, none of that was real to them. There's a difference between a phone call from somebody that has lost a loved one in which that, that death is embedded with immense, immense eternal hope in what God has done and is doing versus dealing with family that has no hope in this matter. They don't know who Jesus Christ is really. And they don't know what God has planned for us. Now, let me share one third illustration out of this. Uh, an individual that I'm pretty confident is a believer lost a loved one and actually wanted me to answer some questions directly related to what we're looking at tonight because this individual didn't know what happened to their loved one when they died, confident that their loved one was a believer. 
and second of all, didn't know what would happen to them in the future, and actually wondered, did they miss out on Christ's coming for us? Are they going to miss out on that now because they died before Christ came back? All three of those scenarios really illustrate well the importance of this section that Paul's going to do, that we're going to look at tonight. We're going to start it tonight. We're not going to get through this uh, by any means. I was telling Peg I got bogged down for over a half hour with just one word in here today when I was going back reviewing my notes. Uh, but in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, going down to verse 13, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. And I'm going to read through all of this passage. I'm going to read from the New American Standard. But we do not want you... I'm going to let the keys join on here just a second here. Okay. So whenever the key, whenever the keys get on, and I think they're on now. Oh, they're connecting. There we go. Just a moment. I am. This is interesting. Actually, most of you, I, some of you may know this from me, but if I have notes that I am working through, I write dates down so I know where I left off, where to pick up. But I can look back at those dates. But all of these, I've been writing down with them that this is during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm writing this down just because... I thought it might be interesting to look back at those someday down the road, I don't know, and notice, oh, oh, we were going through this at that time. Anyway, we are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We just were going to start reading verse 13. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, King James says ignorant, but uninformed, unknowing, not knowing, brothers, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in clouds for a meeting of the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort or encourage one another with these words. So as I said with the two introductory illustrations, Paul was concerned, if we remember from chapter 3 in 1 Thessalonians here, that Paul said he was, he was concerned that he hadn't been able to tell them everything he thought that they probably would need to know. He thought that there were some of these people that had missed out on learning some things. He knew there were things he hadn't covered, and he knew the effects that that might have. He was afraid that even the tempter, that it would be Satan, would take advantage of what they wouldn't know and would therefore um, uh, take advantage of that and tempt them, that it might cause them problems. For he says, so we don't want you to be uninformed or unknowing uh, in these things. And interestingly enough, the word that he uses here for, un, for not knowing or being uninformed or ignorant is actually, and we get our English word ignorant from a, from a kind of a poor English pronunciation 
of this Greek word uh, agnao, uh, or um, not knowing from gnosko, but not knowing that. So agnosko even, going back to this. And the idea being that you don't have an experiential knowledge of this matter, meaning Paul had imparted this, and I believe the very fact that he calls uses the word experiential knowledge shows you that understanding these details of our future, they're not just theoretical. They're not just pie in the sky. They're not. I, I when when Emily moved down to Walla Walla, <clears throat> I was I was trying to be helpful and looking at churches, and so I spent quite a bit of time online listening to pastors at various churches down there preaching messages. And there was one pastor at a particular church that said, we're going to start a new series in Revelation. I thought, oh, this would be interesting. And, he, and so he kind of goes through and he kind of just mentions a couple things in brief. And he says, we don't usually spend a lot of time going through Revelation because he says the details about the future and how all these events might or might not play out they're really not very practical. We're about practical stuff here in our church. And oh boy, I just wanted to reach through the computer and just give him a good smack because I'm like, this is practical. That's why Paul uses a form of the word for, for experiential knowledge. Because when you have a positive view of your future, it's not just kind of a general, well, Jesus, someday's sort of coming back something and, and you don't know. It has a negative impact such as the individual I was talking about that was a believer and was concerned for essentially the loss of his spouse is what he was concerned for. He didn't know what happened to his spouse. And some of you, I've told you before, with Joan Woodall, um, when she, a couple weeks before she passed away, one of the best Bible studies I've ever had the privilege of doing was sitting in her living room answering questions that she had about her future. And it gave her hope and peace in her last weeks. There were certain things that she was concerned about. And so there's a, an experiential benefit in understanding your future. And so he says, I do not want you to be ignorant or uninformed brothers. And remember, so he's writing to believers. This is not a truth for unbelievers. Unbelievers will never be able to appreciate this truth. This is something exclusively for believers. And we'll see why in a moment. Concerning those who sleep, and the word that he uses for sleep here um, is used with um, it's used with in the book of Matthew with regard to the people that came out of the graves on the day that Christ rose again and went into the city. So they were those the bodies of those that were sleeping. It's used of Lazarus when Jesus Christ says, "Oh, our brother sleeps," and the the disciples are like, "Oh, well, if he's just sleeping, that's okay. Sleep's good when you're sick." And he's like, "We know I don't mean." I don't mean he's taking a nap. I mean, it's the sleep of death. And uh, and then the disciples are a little bit alarmed in that. It's used by Luke of Stephen's death over in Acts chapter 7. And it's used four times by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 of those who believe. Now, I want to go to 1 Corinthians 15 because I want to look at one specific verse in here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and he's talking in verse 51, we have this statement here. 
Behold, I show you a mystery. We will not all sleep. Now, that's going to be borne out by the passage we're going to look at tonight. We're not going to get to that part of it tonight, although we have already read through it. But we're not all going to sleep. In other words, Paul assured. This is amazing because just today as I was reviewing some of this and I pulled a couple of commentaries uh, on the book of Matthew out that I was looking at at some other verses, that both of those men, uh, both of those said, all believers are going to die before Christ returns. Every, every believer is going to die and have to be resurrected. <laughs> Thinking, I, these guys are supposed to be scholars, or they were scholars. They're long since, probably over a century past, over a century past, both of those writers. But to me, it was amazing that both of them had that understanding, though Paul says, clearly, we're not all going to sleep. Now, not only that, but I want you to go back up in this passage, and I want to look at um, let me see if I'm looking for the verse. Let's go back up to verse 22, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. It says, for as in or by Adam all die, so also by Christ all will be made alive. So Adam brought about the death of all men. Christ brings about the life of all men, even if some of them are going to live um, uh, going into spiritual death and going into the lake of fire, but they're going to be resurrected in this way. But each, he says, in their own order. So when he's looking at groups of soldiers, this is a term that would be used of groups of soldiers where you'd have, if you've ever seen soldiers on a, on a uh, 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 somebody that's been in the military could tell better, but on a field where they're being presented before other people, not when they're in battle. Uh, but even in battle, the idea is they each have their own order and they each are answering to their own uh, commander. And that's what this idea of this, each in his own order. They, they don't all resurrect at the same time. They each have in their own order. And the first thing he says, Christ, the first fruits of those who are Christ or those who are sleeping. Um, um, and let me just get the statement here. Those who are Christ that is coming and uh, I'm missing it here. Oh, there, verse 20. I'm sorry, I didn't go back up far enough. There's my problem. Now, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are sleeping. There it is. I just, I wasn't looking at my notes. I didn't go back far enough. The first fruits of those who are sleeping. Now, he's the first fruits of those who are sleeping with regard to those who are believers. Because he, because the unsaved are not going to be resurrected in any sense like Christ is resurrected. They're not going to be resurrected in a glorified body. But if we die, if I would die tonight, when Christ returns in the rapture, I would be changed and I would be in a glorified body. Now, Old Testament saints are even going to be raised in a glorified body. It may not be like mine, because mine's going to be modeled after Christ, but he is a first fruit. He's a sampling then of, of those who are asleep. And so he's using this word sleep, obviously of death. And I don't think any of us have a problem with that, but I think it's important for us to, to understand that that this is a word that he primarily uses when he uses the word sleep. You don't have this used of unsaved people. You have this word sleep used of believers in death, not unsaved people. Unsaved people are said to be dead, to have died. Believers are said to be sleeping. And so, back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are sleeping. Those who are sleeping. Now, move ahead to chapter 5 for just a minute. And in chapter 5 and verse 6 of 1 Thessalonians, 
uh, let's go to verse 5. He says, for he says, for you are all sons of light, sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Verse 6. So then, let us not sleep as the rest, but let us watch and let us be sober. Now, even if you read this in, just reading this in your English Bible, you, you should stop and go, huh. He said, don't let us sleep. Obviously, he can't be referring to what he was talking about over in chapter 4, because he certainly isn't saying, well, let us not die. <laughs> Most people, as we've been talking, as we've been talking about the issue of death uh, a couple of different times in the last couple of weeks, what did, you know, what did Satan say? Skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. Men will do anything to live another day. So, yeah, if that was what Paul was saying here, most people would say, hey, I don't want to die. I'm going to do whatever I can to live another day. But that's not what he's talking about. And interestingly enough, in the Greek, he actually doesn't use the word koimao, but he uses the word kathudo because he's talking about a different kind of sleep. He's talking about people that are dozing when they should be alert, when they should be awake. It's used of the of five of the, or it's used of the ten virgins waiting for the bridegroom over in Matthew 25, and they were dozing. They're they're supposed to be alert and they're kind of dozing off while they're supposed to be waiting for him. And that's obviously what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about believers that are kind of dozing off when we should be watchful and paying attention to what's going on around us. So with that in mind, we go back up there to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 again. In verse 13, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant or uninformed in this practical, with regard to this practical truth, this practical knowledge about those who are sleeping, so that you will not grieve, <clears throat> so you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Now the word grief, there's two possibilities on this word grief. It could be a middle voice that you just in yourself, the middle voice in the Greek could be in myself or for myself, I'm grieving. And I could see that. But it's more likely that this is passive. In other words, the form of this word can be middle or passive both. This is an interpretive issue. And I particularly think it's passive. If you want to disagree with me, that's okay, because like I said, uh, you can't conclusively state one way or another. But I would say the passive makes more sense that it's the death of a loved one, death of somebody you care about, that causes you to grieve. It puts you to a state of grief, and that would be passive then. The death of a loved one makes you grieve. Passive in this way. If, it's, if you want to take it as a middle, meaning you're just emphasizing, you're just grieving in yourself, okay. But I think we all get this. None of us are going to say, hey, uh, when, when so-and-so's gone, I'm going to be tough, I'm not going to grieve. And then it happens and it's like, oh, I can't help it. I decided I'm going to grieve anyway. No, it's usually that you can't stop it. Most people, when they go through grief, it's not that they choose to grieve. It just happens. They can't control the grief because the event is painful, hurts. And so the passive voice is most likely here. But notice what he says, that we should not grieve like the rest, the ones having no Hope, or the literally in the Greek, the ones not having hope. There's an emphasis in there. The ones not having. So they don't have. It's not there. And it's a present tense participle, meaning they right now, they don't have hope. So now you go to these situations where that I was telling you about in the introduction here about 
people that would call me up. And it's just, it's got almost a dread when you have people like this that call you and they want you to do a funeral and you're thinking, I don't know what I'm going to do. I actually called one of my professors I had when I was in seminary and I said, I never in my wildest dreams expected that somebody that is not in our church or a believer, somebody that's not a believer that I don't know would call and ask me to do a funeral for them. I didn't expect that to happen. But the last thing in the world they would want me to do. I said, what do I do? And he goes, well, you can't. He says, don't preach the poor soul that died into hell because he says, you don't know where they're at. He says, and you can't, don't preach them into heaven because you don't know if that's where they are. Just focus them on the gospel and give them hope for themselves. And I was like, hmm, okay. So rather than going, oh, your loved one is fine. They're in the arms of Jesus and all the other pithy, ridiculous sayings that people say. We don't have any of those sayings, by the way, in the Word of God. Uh, those are things that people like to say because it makes them feel better. Rather than doing that, focus them on who is Jesus Christ? What did he do? And because of that, if you believe in him, guess what? You can actually live a life that is full of hope for the future. And this is, this is largely what I have done. And the reason that, that I've had to do it that way is because when you're dealing with unsaved people, he says they don't have hope. Isn't that an amazing thing? Does that cause you to have a little different perspective when you look at the people around you in the world? Might be relatives, might be some of your good friends, might be your neighbors, people you work with. And you sometimes wonder why they live and think the way they do. And it's the activity and thinking of people that are living in reality a fearful, hopeless life. And Paul says, we shouldn't be like that. Now, Paul isn't saying, don't grieve. I think that that's, that's a mistake. That's not what he's talking about. He's not saying, don't grieve. What he says, don't grieve like they grieve. You can grieve for somebody that you love that is no longer here, but it is a grief that should be loaded with hope because you know what God's plan for your future and for the future of those that, that believing loved one. And so Paul says, don't grieve like them. He doesn't say don't grieve. I, I, I hope you all understand that. I hope you all get that. God's not this dispassionate God that stands above everybody going, what's his problem down there? Your grandmother's fine. What are you crying about, boy? You know, when my grandmother passed away like that. Uh, and uh, it's just like, God's not like that. But he's providing us a, a picture of the future so that we don't have to be overwhelmed by grief to the point that it just sinks us in depression and sadness and grief and we just can't stand to think about anything about it. We can, well, what does the last verse of this chapter sell us? tell us? Say it real loud, Peggy. Therefore, comfort one another. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. I, and I, I, I tell you, I've, I've been to more funerals by that with pastors that focus on all kinds of other stuff when they do funerals. And the one things that they don't do is they never come to this passage and encourage believers with regard to the future hope. And I just always wonder, 
Why would you not do that? This thing is, this passage is, is just an absolute joy for the believer. And it's an intense, immense source of comfort for those that have lost uh, believing loved ones. Having said this, this now, um, move into the next phrase, or the next statement in verse 14. For if we believe, this is the first class condition, so Paul's assuming this to be true. It is a genuine if. I know we sometimes say since. Since is kind of cheating. It's an if to try to say if we believe, and Paul knows his audience is all going, well, yeah, yeah, we believe that we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Yeah, I mean, Paul's not going, well, I don't know, maybe you don't. First class condition, he assumes that they all do. But you ask it in an if because it draws your audience into your discussion. And so he says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Thessalonians are going, okay, yeah, yeah, going back to the initial gospel. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, in almost all your English translations have, in Jesus. Now we're going to deal with this last phrase before we deal with the one before this. When he says uh, in here, that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. We have this word that we talked about, sleep, a little bit ago, referring to believers. But we have it followed then. They sleep not in Jesus. There's no in here. This is the preposition dia, through means of. There's no justification whatsoever. I went back and reviewed this again this afternoon just to check myself in my notes. There's no justification for translating dia in and that's the way most people, a lot of people come to this. They, they talk about that these are believers who died in Jesus. So he's talking about believers, people who are in Jesus. Second issue with this, not only is it the preposition, the wrong preposition, but second of all, this would be the only time in the entire epistles in which believers are said to be in Jesus. We don't even have statements that say that we're in Jesus Christ. We have statements that say we're in Christ Jesus, but we have in Christ, in the Lord, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom, in him, but never in Jesus. We have a thing that says the truth is in Jesus, but we never have any statements that say that we are in Jesus, because that's not what Paul's referring to. Paul's making a statement here that goes along with what we've been talking about a couple times. We've talked about this a couple weeks ago on Sunday mornings when we're looking at these promises that God's made to us as believers and promises about our future. Well, this statement here is, they're those who are sleeping through means of Jesus. Now, what in the world does that mean? Sleep through means of Jesus. And this is one of the things that I think Christians don't get, and they need to hear this. Pastors, Bible city leaders, Sunday school teachers, whoever you are, believers, if you don't even, you're not even a normal Bible teacher, you need to tell your believing friends, you know what? If you die, it's because the Lord took you home. And we use that language, but we don't know what that means. We say crazy things like, oh, the Lord wanted them in heaven because he wanted apple pies up there. I went to a funeral in which that's actually what the pastor said. Somebody made apple pies in God now God wanted to have more apple pies in heaven. This is the kind of crazy stuff that you hear at funerals like that, you know? God needed them up there and God didn't need them in heaven. That's not it. It's that God is determined 
the length of our days. We've been over this. Job says this. God's determined our days, and you're not going to pass a single one of those. Do you know what kind of fearless, bold faith that gives us as Christians? Yeah, we might be afraid maybe of somebody knocking our teeth out or something, but we're not afraid of dying because we realize we're going to go home precisely when the Lord's determined for us to go home. David said the same thing. And we have the same thing kind of communicated for us over in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 32 also. And Paul tells us here that guess what? When a believer dies, when a believer sleeps, it's through means of Jesus. Jesus. Let's go over to Hebrews 2. We looked at this a couple weeks ago on Sunday morning. Let's come back to this verse. Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to go down to verse 14. Hebrews 2, verse 14. Hebrews 2, 14 says, Therefore, perhaps even something real time. Now that. Hebrews 2, 14 says, Therefore, since the children share or uh, fellowship together in flesh and blood, he himself, referring to Christ likewise, also partook of the same that through means of death, here's one of those dia prepositions, through means of death, he might render idle, or numeric standards says powerless, but render idle him who had power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were enslaved or subject to slavery all their lives. In other words, Satan manipulates the fear, manipulates us through the fear of death, and he gets us to make sometimes very crazy, foolish choices. And we're watching that right now in a world that is so afraid of getting sick and so afraid of dying that they're making, in my opinion, this is my, you may disagree with me, but they're making very foolish choices. And Paul says that's because they fear death. And you and I as believers should not fear death. In fact, Paul says, well, let's go look at this verse. Turn over to 1 Corinthians. This didn't occur to me till just now, but 1 Corinthians 3. And I've got to find the verse here for just a minute. Um, 1 Corinthians 3 and... Oh, no, too far. I went too far. Verse, verse 21. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 21. I don't have this one in my notes, so it just had popped into my head here. So then, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things are yours. You realize that? You, you see what he just said? All these are for your benefit. Paul, Paul, uh, Apollos, Cephas, they're for your benefit. Don't grab onto one of those guys and say, oh, I'm a Paul guy. That's what he was getting at in here. And he says, but the same thing about the world. The world doesn't have to own you. You can make a proper use of the world. He's going to say that later on in chapter 7, that there's a proper use and there's a, a use that becomes obsessed with the world uh, in these things. And life, you don't have to be a slave to life. You can take life and use it properly, but also death. And I've been encouraging you. Uh, it's not how, how we live down here. It's not just about how we live. It's about how we die, too. I really think, believers, how we face death, not just going, 
oh, I'm going to go home and meet my Lord. That Well, that's a good thing. Don't get me wrong. But that we as believers can actually own death rather than it owning us. See, So we can have a very positive perspective on life and death both. And so with this in mind, I want you to turn over to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, and I'm looking for my verse. I should, maybe it's towards the end of the chapter. I think it's verse 17. Let's go down to verse 17. I thought I highlighted it because I really didn't want to miss it in the midst of all my notes. But Revelation 1, 17. This is John when he's, uh, in, he's in the, this, the Lord's day. He's, he's uh, in prison there on Patmos. He's a very old man. And he sees this vision. And he sees this vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the Son of Man. He says, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and I am the last, the, li the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. See, we clearly know this is Lord Jesus Christ. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Why does he say of death and of Hades? Number one, because he's the one that turns the key, shall we say, when it's time for us to come through that doorway of death. And Hades, because Hades was where believers in the Old Testament went, and he went, according to um, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, he went with those keys, apparently, and took those that were held captive in Hades and led captivity captive so that he moved paradise from having been in the heart of the earth now to what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 at the edge of the third heaven. And so Paul says here, or pardon me, Jesus Christ is speaking here to John. This isn't Paul writing, this is Jesus Christ speaking. And Jesus Christ is saying, I have the keys of death and I have the keys of Hades. By the way, as a, another quick encouragement for a verse that we misuse, uh, I even have some songs I really like, but they misuse this verse. Over in Matthew 16, where it says, On this rock I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. Referring here to with reference to Hades. He's not talking about the powers of hell aren't going to come out, because trust me, hell is a place, and Hades are a place of torment and punishment for Satan and his hordes. They don't live down there, unlike the chick tracks, you ever remember the chick tracks, you know, the little comic book tracks where they'd have the Satan sitting behind a desk down there and flames licking up around him and he's sending out demons to torment people. It's baloney. Satan's roaming the earth and he's going before the father and accusing the brothers. He is not in Hades. What Jesus meant when he says the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, that is a forward-looking promise that when he builds that church, we at death don't go to Hades. We go directly to the third heaven. That's a promise. And so he had the keys, keys of death and the keys of Hades, both. He has both of those. So when you face death, and let's go back over there to where we were in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. When he says those who have fallen asleep through Jesus, through means of Jesus... 
he's talking about the fact that when you die, the Lord Jesus Christ, from our perspective, turns a key, opens the door, and says, it's time for you to come on through. I don't know when that day is. You don't know when that day is. I'm supposed to live every day as though it's the day that he's going to come back, the rapture. But if I'm living like that, then if he's going to take me home early in death, I can be okay with that. I should be okay with that. And so he says, if we believe, this is 1 Thessalonians 4.14, if we believe, and we do, that Jesus died, rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through means of Jesus. In fact, Paul even says this, Paul even alludes to this again in 2 Timothy 4 at the end of the chapter, where Paul says over there, um, he says, the first time when he appeared before Caesar, he says, the Lord stood with me and he rescued me from the mouth of the lion. This time, he knows he's going to die because he already said that back over in verse 7 or verse 8 of that chapter. He says, I'm already being poured out like an offering, meaning what, how Paul looked at his death. Even in my death, I can be an offering to God. That's the way Paul looked at it. And so at the end of that chapter, just after he said the Lord rescued me, he uses the same word rescue again. And he says, and he will rescue me into his heavenly kingdom. He will rescue me from every evil work. As we've said before, when they brought that, that sword or that axe down on the back of Paul's neck, it was the last evil thing that this world could ever subject him to. They, they liberated him. That was an act by which the Lord Jesus Christ rescued him. Christians today were, would go, what? Being executed was a rescue? From Paul's point of view, yeah, it was. And you read about some of what Paul had endured you read that over in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and Paul goes through some of the stuff that he went through, and I, I'm, I'm surprised the guy didn't want to throw in the towel earlier. In fact, you remember what he says over there in Philippians chapter 1? He says, to go and to be with the Lord is much better. In other words, he's saying death. Death would be better. In other words, if it was his choice to make, and it's not, but if it was his choice to make, he would leave. He'd go home. We don't think like that. We don't think like that. And so, Paul goes on and he says, not only is that it's those who are sleeping through Jesus, but then Paul says before that, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. So we're talking about those who have fallen asleep through Jesus, believers. Now when he says God will bring with him, we're kind of put in a situation where we, where we go, well, wait a second. I thought Jesus Christ is the one that's coming back. When did the Bible ever say that God's coming back? Well, let's go over to John 14. John 14. Uh, several years ago, uh, I read an article, uh, or a blog, I guess it was, uh, by uh, a man that had been in the evangelical faith at one time and kind of has backed away from it and because he thinks that we as evangelicals, what we're looking at here in 1 Thessalonians, he thinks we get too caught up in all that. Um, I get sidetracked with this whole thing, <laughs> trying to tell you somebody. He thinks we're supposed to be trying to fix the world and change the world. 
And if we're looking forward to the Lord coming back to take us out of the world, we're not going to work hard enough to try to fix the world, make it a better place. And I'm thinking he needs to read what Paul wrote, that things are in the world are going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. <laughs> and if he'd read that, I think maybe he would change his perspective. But anyway, but in there, he said, we have no place in the Bible that tells us that we should be expecting the Lord to come and get us. The Bible never says that anywhere. He says, except kind of an obscure statement in 1 Thessalonians 4 and an obscure statement in John 14 that's really hard to understand. So I'm going to read to you now a passage of scripture that is really hard to understand. Okay, got that? I should have Clayton here ask, answering this question or maybe Brooklyn or Kylie. John 14, verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Well, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many places to dwell. If it were not so, I would have told you, because I am going to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. That was so hard. What a riddle. I just can't figure that path. You know, I've understood that passage since I was a little kid. I knew, necessarily I always appreciated it as a kid, but I knew exactly what it meant. That in the Father's house, there were places to stay, but he was going to go get a place ready for me, and he was going to come get back and get me and take me where he is so I could be there. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to know Greek or Hebrew. You don't have to know theology. That's a... I do not know how anybody could come to this and say it's obscure, except that you're trying to influence other people to go, oh yeah, that is hard to understand. I don't know how anybody could read that and go, that's hard to understand. Oh, they might go, well, what, what is the Father's house? What is this place he's preparing for? I, those are some questions that maybe we couldn't answer. But aside, that aside, is it pretty plain that he's going to go get a place ready for me? And huh, I'm going to come back? My parents come out and visit us once in a while. And guess what? We get a place ready for them when they come. We make sure the sheets are clean. We make sure the bed's made. We make sure that that room is fresh so that they've got a place to stay. That's pretty easy. They understand that. That's a pretty easy thing to understand. You get a place ready for them. Exactly what Jesus was going to do in preparing a place for us, that maybe we can't understand directly from this passage. But I think we can understand pretty much that he's going to go get one ready, whatever that means, and he's going to come back and get me and take me there. He says it's my father's house. He's getting a place ready. He's going to come back and get me and take me there. Where? To the father's house. He doesn't say the father's going to come and get me. He says he's going to come and get me, right? Isn't that what he says? I will come and take you to myself. So if we go back, just from that passage that was so hard to read, I know I'm kind of mocking that that individual that wrote that article. I still, I just don't know how anybody could look at that verse and say that that's esoteric and hard to understand. It's pretty straightforward. But this is this is the one that actually I think really can't catch people. And just surveying all of my commentaries on Thessalonians, I can guarantee you, I don't, I don't, and you know, so maybe I'm the one that's wrong here, but none of them, none of them agree with what I'm going to say. And that is, 
I believe this is one of those verses where Paul is calling Jesus Christ God. But almost every commentary I have that I went through on 1 Thessalonians, they all take this, that this is God the Father that is bringing back those who have died through Christ, and he's bringing them back down here to be resurrected. That's the way they look at it. Even though this would be the only passage that would tell us that God the Father is the one that brings us with him. Actually, most scriptures say that it's the Lord Jesus Christ that's doing this. We just saw that in John 14. In fact, I want you to go with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. In this passage where he's talking to us about what God's grace does. This is one of the key passages for teaching people what how does grace teach us? If we're not if we're under grace and not under law, then what does that mean? Well, God's grace and the benefits of grace are what compel us to live the way we do, not the threat of being in, uh, of getting in trouble or the promise of a, of earning a blessing. Neither one of those are true for our situation. And so he says in verse 11, this is the grace of God. And it is verse 12. It is teaching us, training us. And he goes through these things that it trains us. It's training us to say no to ungodliness, to say no to worldly lusts, and to live with a saved attitude, righteously and godly in this present age. Then verse 13, eagerly expecting the happy hope, even the appearing, the, the very present, very bright light appearing of the glory of our great God, even Savior Christ Jesus. Do you see what he just said there? We are waiting for our great God, even Savior Christ Jesus. This is one of those um, Granville Sharp, that, that English man that did a lot of this research on this Greek construction in which you have two nouns in Greek that are connected by a chi and they share one definite article. And when you have those in the singular, and then you put the article or the, the conjunction chi in between in the article on the front. So it'd be it put it in English, the noun and a noun. So the God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And that that and in the middle is telling you we're talking about the same person. We're not talking about two people. We're not saying our great God and then our Savior Christ Jesus. He's saying our great God, even our Savior, Christ Jesus. And what's this passage referring to? The very same rapture that Paul's talking about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And he calls him here also God. And I believe the reason he's referring to it as, to as God is because he does not exercise his authority as a man in resurrecting these people. He's exercising his divine authority when he resurrects these people. So as the divine divine savior, he brings those people back with him to resurrect them. And here, he's the one in not only in his humanity as savior that he's coming, but as his in his divinity as God that he's coming back. And and grace he says grace trains us to be looking forward to that. Grace encourages us to look forward to that. Living by law it's not going to train you to be looking forward to this. But grace will. And so if we go back then again to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we do, even so God, 
referring to God the Son in this case, he will lead, he will lead or bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. Now he uses two titles of the same person here, God and Jesus, because it's in the realm of his humanity that he has this, and we saw that over there in Hebrews. He became flesh and blood to liberate us from the fear of death by dying. By his becoming flesh and blood and dying, he liberates us from the fear of death. So it's in his humanity, interestingly enough, that he exercises this authority to turn the key and bring us home. It's in his deity, but also man. There's a, a real man coming, but he's a God-man that he comes down here to earth, bringing back with him all those believers that have died through Jesus. Now, here's, here's what's one last important thing. When he's talking about those believers who have died through Jesus, which believers have died through Jesus, technically? Those believers since the day of Pentecost. Those believers that make up the church. Because that, according to Hebrews, that is when he took this authority over death from Satan by his death. So believers in the Old Testament, they weren't in this situation. This is something that very clearly in Hebrews 2 that Jesus Christ accomplished at the end of his life by his death. So this is referring to us. Now that's why a lot of people like this to be in Jesus, but it's not. I, we, I, as much as I'd like to go that way, we can't go that way because the, the grammar, the, the vocabulary doesn't allow us to do that. So just as we tie this together here at the end, Paul was concerned because he looked at that word to be uninformed because this, this truth about what happens when Christ comes back and about those believers who have died even, that is a practical knowledge. It's an experiential knowledge matter. It's something that affects the way you live. That's why he uses the word for experiential knowledge. And it has to do with how you look at believers who sleep, believers who die, so that it can temper our grief. Not eliminate grief, but temper our grief. Because we believe Jesus Christ died and rose again. And that focuses us on more than just the fact that I get my get-out-of-hell-free card. It even gives me a perspective as I look forward to my future and the future of those that have gone before me as believers in the body of Christ. And it gives me also encouragement to remember in these verses that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one that turns the key and brings us home. And he's also going to be the one that resurrects the very same people that he was instrumental in bringing about their death. He's also the one that resurrects them. That is a, that whole thing in there takes a situation that just causes us immense grief and tears and it just loads us up with hope so that it tempers the tears. And I'm, I know for a fact, I think everybody, everybody we're talking to tonight, you've all been there. You all know what it's like to have grief and tears over people that are very dear to you. And when you've had tears over those people that are believers, there definitely is a serious tempering of the extent of that grief. So with that, we'll stop. Does anybody have any questions or comments that they'd like to add? You can either message it to me here or you can unmute yourself and ask or share it. Did you mute anybody? Everybody I muted. 
Well, I didn't. Don't Most of them mute. Them. They muted themselves. Cool. Like, Which ones do you have to unmute? Anybody? Question? Comment? Okay. I guess that means it must have been plain and clear. Okay, let me shut this other, let me shut this off real quick, I'll be right back. <laughs>